0: Hosting provided by Host Tornado. They offer website hosting packages, dedicated servers, and VPS solutions. HostT.net
1: Programming Throwdown, Episode 15, Lua. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So, uh, yeah, if you're wondering
0: why the uh, cadence of the show slowed down a little bit, it's people, been a little bit more than two weeks people don't wonder anymore <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh it's because patrick and i were on vacation um patrick was in sunny beautiful florida no it was, was just really in... hot oh really oh man
1: already it's only may yeah but it was yeah. like really humid in 90 something oh, man! you don't realize how quickly and we're gonna sound really obnoxious jason just forewarning people because <laughs> we're like oh sunny california And, you know, but you really do get used to it really fast. And Florida has amazing weather. But I went back and I sweated the whole time. Yeah, I remember when I went back to Florida to visit my fam, uh, I remember my glasses
0: fogging up, like, when I got off the airplane. And, like, I couldn't see anything. (laughs) And it was, like, just so
1: damp. Yes, it's it's so much more humid and hot. Ugh. Yeah, terrible. Now we sound, like, whiny, but that's okay.
0: I was in not-humid Alaska for a couple weeks and uh, that was pretty wild. We uh, we hiked all the way up to a glacier. A um, couple of guys got buried in the snow, and we had to ha- we had snow shovels. We had to dig them out. Um, we were walking on these, like, uh, snowshoes, which are, for people who don't know, they look kind of like a beaver's tail. They're, like, really, like, flat and wide. And the idea is, like, you won't break through. Because, you know, the way it works is the snow keeps piling on top, but the sun, especially during the day, sort of, like heats up the snow and it creates kind of like a shell because it's like this water is heating and then cooling a lot Um, and so you have this shell of that that's harder than the snow itself and underneath the shell you have this soft snow and so the snowshoes allow you to sort of walk on this shell without having to uh like trudge through the snow right um but uh, if if you do fall in uh, your snowshoes like break through then like you sink in like and people are sinking in like three four feet in the snow and then the snow sort of like it's not like quicksand like you don't sink in it or anything but like you fall through the snow and then the snow like comes around you kind of and like entraps you and especially since you have the snowshoes that are like attached to your feet like you can't lift them up because there's just too much snow has like collapsed on you so um and so this somebody is has to. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we did all this to go to a glacier and take a lot of pictures. It was, it, but it, you know, it, it, the 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 adventure was the fun of it.
1: I think they have helicopters for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, we could have taken the helicopter instead. We hiked it. <laughs> so, uh, our parents, uh, my in-laws, came and uh, they actually took the helicopter. So we met. Did they them. meet you out there? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, we met them there, and then they took the helicopter back. And it was about, I think it was like eight to ten miles. Um, so it was quite a hike um, And we were pretty exhausted And, and you know, At some one point The the tour group leader was like you know, You've only done 50% because we got to go back So um, we Those are the really words tired. you don't want to hear <laughs> Yeah, but uh, some cool things about it One, we saw some black bears That was pretty cool um, We learned the difference between black bear, grizzly bear And polar bear So uh, black bears are the least threatening um, They pretty much run away as soon as they see you Um grizzly bears and polar bears are like much more dangerous and brown bears um are also pretty dangerous. Um What else? Oh, the uh the tour guides made this awesome stuff. They took like cocoa powder, like like you'd use to make hot chocolate, and tang and put it together and they made hot chocolate tang. And it tasted like you know those orange chocolates? Like it's like a huge orange-shaped chocolate, and you oh, yes, like yes. slam it on the ground, and it breaks into pieces. You know, it tasted like that. It was really good. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so yeah, I was kind of hiking in the wilderness, and but we're back with Lua. You survived. So yes, we did. It was pretty awesome. And I'll, I'll uh, I have some pictures posted. I'll share them with the Meme Hub um, page, so that anyone who's following the page will get to see the pictures of the hike.
1: Or the programming throwdown page, maybe too. That's right, the programming throwdown page. Yeah. <laughs> what did I say? You said meme hub. You have too many pages. Oh no,
0: I have too many. For real, um, I think I'm uh, gonna add a
1: third page now, so it's gonna be just ridiculous. Uh oh, spoiler alert. All right, so <laughs> the news of the week is uh, Facebook. So uh, I, Jason, I think uses Facebook some. I have an account, I think, somewhere. Uh, all I know is Facebook keeps emailing me and saying you have like 30-something friend requests. And I'm just like, I don't care. You should detect it. I haven't logged in in years. <laughs> so I got I one when Facebook it first came out. as like um,
0: the OAuth. You know, like, like some um, things now will let you log in using your Facebook right. ID. Like single and, sign-on, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But that's about all I use it for.
1: Yeah. So actually I'm interested how many of Facebook's 900 million users are doing that like, only interaction, or is it 900 million is, like, registered, and then I forget how many they claim are active, but how many of their active users, you know, are logging onto Facebook.com, being served ads, you know, and, you know, interfacing with the content? How many are accessing it, like, on a mobile device where you don't get ads? And then how many are just using it like you for, you know, just logging into other websites, authenticating with stuff, or just playing games?
0: Yeah, well, I read an article that uh, over a third of people just log on facebook to play zynga games so um yeah
1: so farmville nobody admits to playing that game but i know there has to be a ton of people playing that game oh yeah totally there's got to be but you know
0: i mean even just even if it's true and, and people aren't you know the whole wall post on the wall share with your friends if that's kind of like gone with the dodo it's still pretty useful technology, you know. Just being able to identify people and their relationships,
1: and a lot of applications need something like that to be, you know, even better. But is it worth hundreds of billions of dollars? And that's the question that was asked at the end of last week. That's right. So Facebook IPO, their initial public offering, and Jason and I are not business majors. We are not financial students. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Let's put a disclaimer
0: here. <laughs> you know, we don't. Don't take this as stock market advice or anything like that.
1: (laughs) This should not be construed as trading advice in any shape or form. Um, But, yeah, so it was really weird. We were watching it, you know, being in the tech industry. People at work were interested in this because it's a a very – it hit mainstream, right? So even the morning news was covering uh, Facebook's IPO and it being local to this area, the Silicon Valley, that, you know, it was big news. And so people were watching it, and it was just one of the weirdest things – You know, I've seen that people were just talking about it and then stuff just seemed to go terribly wrong. Um, So when it first opened, it turns out afterwards I was trying to read because. You know, when I I think it was LinkedIn or Groupon had IPO'd, I had tried to watch it because like, I was curious what would happen. And yeah. it didn't uh, open with the market, but this was expected. And actually, news reports said this was going to happen. But Facebook was supposed to start trading when the NASDAQ opened. They're going to trade on the NASDAQ, or they are trading on the NASDAQ. Um, but it turned out the NASDAQ had technical difficulties that delayed the start of trading for like almost three hours or two hours, two and a half hours, something like that. And uh, so I read a little bit about it trying to understand. And the best explanation I could kind of come across was that they, the IPO price, that very first price that it's going to start at, is calculated by how many c- people kind of say, I'm going to buy shares at whatever price it opens at, right? So before the market opens, they put in an order with their broker. I don't care. Buy it, buy it right, right away, you know? And mm-hmm. um, those are matched, which is the whole purpose of, you know the exchanges so the new york stock exchange nasdaq the chicago board of exchange um these different markets their whole point is matching somebody who wants to buy with somebody who wants to sell and so, they, so i don't want to derail you like you can you can table this but i was just
0: I, I don't know the answer to this. what's the difference between the new york stock exchange and nasdaq like are they just two different
1: people who do the same thing uh th- the technologies behind them are kind of different, but um, oh, okay. And, and essentially they're doing the same thing, which is at the base level, they're matching buyers and sellers for a given stock. Gotcha. So you know that if you want to trade, you know, I'm trying to think of something that's on the New York Stock Exchange. I'm not good at this. Like at and let's say, is on New York Stock Exchange. Um, then you you need to go there to trade it. Versus if you want to trade Facebook, it's on NASDAQ, so you need to go there to trade it. Um, and your broker hides this. So your broker's job is to talk to somebody whose job is to talk to somebody whose job is to talk to somebody whose job is to talk to, to, talk to the exchange. Okay. Um, and in the old days, that used to meant like some person on the floor waving a piece of paper and screaming, you know, I have an order for five shares. And he knows it's from some guy named Jason Gauchi, but uh, nobody else knows. He's like, I got five shares. And somebody else goes, okay, I'll sell you five shares, you know. Um, but now that's all done by computers and it's done at matching. And at each level it goes through. So like your broker, the you know, clearinghouse for your broker, like these successive levels away from you, um, they can match people who also are using. So like if you use Fidelity, let's say, Fidelity can match you against another Fidelity customer um, instead of having to go all the way out to the exchange because then Fidelity makes more money that way because they don't have to pay the exchange. For this oh, service, oh, I see. It's, um, it's
0: almost like, sort of like you could you could relate it to like electricity or
1: water or something like yes, that. Like yes, you, you go to you the nearest to person to, who can give it you the supply. Yeah, right, right. So, okay, so all this, is so like the Nasdaq when it was opening, had all of these orders because, of course, you know the people selling were in very small area, right? So Morgan Stanley and I think a couple other investment banks. So they were only people who were kind of giving sell orders to the Nasdaq. And then people across all other brokerages had buy orders. And so what NASDAQ needed to do, again, this is Patrick's understanding of reading a couple articles and trying to figure out what happened, is that they have to kind of figure out what that first price, what it's going to open at is. And so they have to go and match. So Jason wants to buy 1000 Morgan Stanley wants to sell 10000 So, OK, I need to adjust the price to and fro, do this and that. There's limit, you know, they need to go through and basically have a a queue of all of the buys and sells match them against each other and determine what the final price at the end of all of that is but what happens so, happened- so oh, yep, if Lauren. i understand
0: right so the price of a stock so i guess so some people say i'm, I'm willing to buy but only for thirty dollars and someone else says i'm willing to buy for up to forty dollars right and the person saying like i'm willing to sell so obviously like the thing's going to try and match up the person who's willing to spend more so so it decides, oh, the price of the stock should be forty dollars because this guy's willing to spend forty. But then if if the guy who's willing to spend forty isn't buying all the shares that are up for sale, the guy who's spending thirty is buying half of them. Now the price is thirty five, something yes. like that. Yeah.
1: So it's whatever the last price of a trade took place. So yes. So normally when a stock's not moving, it's because Jason says I'll sell for thirty and I go, I only want to buy for twenty five. And so there's a gap of $5 between us. So an order doesn't take place. And then it's not until somebody else comes along, like maybe Jason says, okay, I'll sell you f- for 25. Then that's the last trade. So that's the price of stock 25. Um, uh, so basically okay. there was all of these orders stacked up. And, and sometimes you can say, I, I don't care, just buy me some. I don't care what the price is, right? And then what it'll do is it'll say, Jason's willing to sell at 30. So I'll buy all of his at 30. The next person's at 35, I'll buy all theirs at 35. You know and then the person buying will get some at 30 some at 35 some at 40 whatever you know as it goes up and so all of this has to take place to figure out what the price is going to be at open and what my understanding was is the way the nasdaq software was written is that <clears throat> they had kind of a unforeseen consequence where before the market opened somebody modified their order said oh i don't want to buy a thousand i want to buy 500 you know and they could do this because the order hadn't been executed yet the trade hadn't taken place um, but when that happened, when that queue had been filled up, and you know millions and millions and millions of these, uh, you know, orders were in there. That when they got to one of these modifications, they kind of had to go back to the start and go again because they had assumed, you know, at you know 0.5 million that they had, you know, an order for this. But now the order was actually something different, and so they would need to kind of unravel back to that point and kind of play it forward again. And so they had this loop. But then because they had to go through all of these modification orders and it was taking a long time because there were so many 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 orders out there that when they came that caused a delay but then during the delay other people freaked out and go what's going on cancel my order you know modify my order too and so every time they would hit one of these they kind of had to start over again and so they just kind of ended up in this vicious cycle of delaying for hours trying to get through this mess and so eventually i guess they stopped that and, like, changed it so that it would ignore the modification orders or something. But it caused a pretty big, you know, mess. This is a big brand name, IPO, Facebook, first day, and then for, like, two hours, nothing happened. Yeah, and, I mean, you know,
0: what the article is sort of alluding to is that, you know, Facebook, before they went public, they had, you know, I think it's Goldman Sachs that was trading these private shares so you could buy a piece of. And so, basically, those people didn't have, like, all of these things happen to them or whatever and so they were able to sort of strategize and, and buy at the right time and get in on it sort of early and things like that and those people were probably all leaving um you know right when it IPO. Yeah, they trying were all to sell. selling
1: because <laughs> yeah they bought in at like 20 right yeah exactly. 20. So, so that's the other thing is so there's all these people trading beforehand there was these issues that you know if you were just you or I you'd have no idea what was going on I only figured this out much later when I was reading about you know reports about what happened Um, And then the other thing that happened is the stock started to drop once that problem was fixed. And then it started to go back up. And you're like, whoa, whoa, it's going back up. Like, this is great. It's going to happen. The IPO pop. And then it turns out that that was the Morgan Stanley, the people doing the IPO. That was them, like, trying to pour all of their money into buying the shares to try to get the price to go back up and get people excited about it. Um, But that only lasted so long. And then it dipped again. And then, you know, Monday, it dipped even more. And so now it's like on a slide downward, which is kind of bad. But all that to say that it was very complicated. And it turns out if you didn't know what was going on, you probably were just going to get hurt. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people's,
0: you know, it's one of these things like it's always been like personally, I always like to invest. Like I've only invested a little bit, but I remember when I was in college, I had a little bit of money and I invested it in Apple. I bought like I think I bought like one share or something like that. Because um, you're, you're like a broke college student, but it's like fun to invest in things that you believe in. And sometimes, you know, if you believe in something, uh, it's sort of it's more than just like trading based on the statistics. Like you're trading based on like kind of like a educated insight in things like that. It's like I, at the time I bought like one of the first, I, think I bought like the second gen iPod, and I was like, this thing is great, this music player is awesome. So I'll buy like one share or whatever, and. Uh, You know, it'd be fun to sort of do this with Facebook and say, look, Facebook, they're providing awesome technology and, you know, it's a way to sort of bring people together, et cetera, et cetera. But if you try to buy, at least right now, you're just going to end up getting caught up in so many people who are just playing this as a game and not, you know, as an investment. Absolutely. And I think it's
1: one of those things. And you have to be honest with yourself. If you're buying it for a long term, don't look at it. If you find yourself looking at it and thinking about it, you're not in it for the long term. Yeah, good point, good point. And I I really don't
0: know if, like, I mean, so many people have said, oh, I have this great strategy, and we're constantly, like, on the neuroevolution users group. Every week somebody's like, oh, I want to use this neuroevolution program to do stock market trading. And just, I mean, if I give you one piece of advice from someone who's done a lot of AI in his life, just don't bother, (laughs) you know. I mean, invest in companies that, like, you either believe in or – you um, you know you see they have a good future things like that and, and just just keep your money in them for a really long time and just treat it as 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 uh, sort of you know and if it goes up and down like what Patrick's saying just ignore it and uh, all of this like trying to like do all this gamey stuff and things I mean there's just so much uh, infrastructure in place to do all of this like we went to one talk where this guy was doing. What was it like nanosecond trading or something mm-hmm. like that and they had written their own operating system <laughs> to do this trading it's just insane so yeah it, it, all this all is just crazy. another case of that
1: and if you think i don't know like if you hear people saying they've got a system they're probably not very successful and that's why they're trying to talk about it and sell something <laughs> yeah if true. they were really successful at like this system they would just use the system until they didn't need money anymore yeah yeah exactly now that's not completely true. There's caveats to that. But for the most part, the people who are loudest about the stocks are typically the worst traders. People who yeah. are really good at it tend to be quiet and not say much.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I mean it's it's um it's fun to fantasize about being like some kind of crazy like white hat hacker, AI like super genius who like makes some program that, you know, makes a bunch of money. But in reality, there's just like massive massive hedge fund like based institutions that have like hundreds and hundreds of like postdocs and professor ex-professors things like that in ai who like do this kind of stuff and uh that's just like for them it's just like like owning a construction company or something they go in they put on their hard hat and they just like (laughs) hack the stock market all day you know so just, like, one person, no matter what kind of, like, talent or anything, is just not going to stand up to something like that.
1: Yeah, there are always exceptions to the rules, but it's it's like anything. You have to look at the odds, right? That you always hear the kid who wants to be the NBA basketball player. And I feel bad for them, but I try to, you know, point out that's statistically unlikely. Yeah, that's like, right. But you don't know. I'm really good. I'm like, you're right. I don't know how good you are. But, I I mean, unless you know you're the best in your state, the best person you've ever played basketball against, you're not making it to the NBA.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and again, that's a perfect example. The people who make it to the NBA, by and large, are people who played in, like, amateur athletic union, played in high school, played in college, and by the time they get ready to enter the NBA, they have, like, this whole history, and they have, like, a... I don't want to say, like, an entourage. That's not the right word. But but they have, like, connections. They know the 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 ins and outs. They Like, they know how the play is supposed to be run. Like, they can go to the coach and they speak the same language. Like, there's all this infrastructure, social and physical infrastructure in place already. Like, you couldn't take somebody who has just incredible natural talent and expect them to make the NBA, like, you know, without going through
1: these phases. Yeah. So... Well, our second second news story, not to, not to dwell <laughs> yeah. on finance stuff forever, this is a programming podcast. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, Twitter uh, has changed. They want to do better at recommending who to follow, what to do, you know, what things of interest. Um, and so they're going to start kind of I guess it's going to be opt out, but they want to start doing more tracking of their users to figure out what they're doing, to figure out what they're interested in so they can provide better recommendations. Um, and of course, as always, people are upset. You know, Twitter wants to track you. They're invading your privacy. And although uh, in one hand, I guess that's technically true, it, it comes down to the, the thing I want to bring up with this article is this this problem, this uh, walk that these companies have to do to straddle making something that's useful to you, and respecting your privacy. Some things you can provide in a perfectly anonymous manner. But it is actually what they're trying to do. I feel it will be better if they track me. But them tracking me means they have information about me that I don't necessarily want them to have. And so how do I make that decision? How do they make that decision? How does somebody who doesn't understand any of these things make that decision? It's very complicated. And it's something more and more that I think Facebook, Google, Twitter, all these people are having to address how do they provide tailored personalized useful results to their users without invading their privacy too much
0: yeah definitely i mean that's a huge huge concern right for these companies because like let's say twitter makes this and there's a hole in it and somehow advertisers get access to like your interests at a very deep level and let's say they get access to your address even and things like that i mean this this sounds really far-fetched but i actually went to uh and this is real, I went to a, uh, uh, what is the word, a conference where somebody was giving a talk, and they actually, using Twitter posts, or tweets, I guess, they were able to determine someone's location of where they lived with, like, remarkable accuracy. And they used the, so Carnegie Mellon comes up has a Twitter, like, data set. So I don't really know much about how it works. It's somehow anonymized, but basically it's like a, It's like a slice of of all of Twitter's data. And so researchers can use this information that's been scrubbed somehow to, uh, you know, do various experiments and things like that. And the kind of things that people can deduce is just shocking. Well, I saw one
1: that it was just by the dialect, like the words you use are regional. So you can identify where somebody is in the country by just the words they choose to use, even in their 140 character tweets.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And they also do um, it's it's kind of, it's based on your connectivity, like people you're connected to. Cuz you think about this, right? Like if if you know, if they could figure out for half of the people, then they can just use the connectivity, like who's friends with who, who's yeah. following who to figure out the other half, you know? So if one person says, "Oh, uh, I went and saw the Giants. I walked to the Giants game today." then you know it could use that phrase to figure out well they must be really close if they walked and so everyone they're following you know is statistically likely to also be in san francisco et etc cetera, et cetera. and and they can you know, build all these inferences and layer them on top of each other um so yeah i mean there's the short of it is, is there's an incredible amount of thing of interesting um things that they can deduce from your information and they can use that to sort of provide like really like targeted based uh you know, whether it's advertising or whether it's giving you information, whether it's assisting you with your searches. or There's tons of things that Twitter can do with this data. But, yeah, at some point it crosses the line of get, being creepy. And <laughs> that line is different for each person. That's what makes it so difficult.
1: Or not even the creepy, but just like you said, the risk of somebody leaking out information you didn't want leaked out.
0: Yeah, yeah, both of those are just really dangerous. Um, like, that was one of the big things with... Uh, Oh, there was some social game I can't remember what it was called. But it was basically like a you you managed an aquarium and like there's different fish and your friends had fish or something. And they were doing pretty good. It was like a startup. And they had like a few million users and people were buying fish and things like that. Then they did something which was kinda sketchy, like I can't remember what it was. Oh, it's like somehow they'd figure out where you lived based on like your Facebook posts and things like that. And then they'd try and like put you in an aquarium with other people who live near you and and the whole thing died like people got freaked out and every like a bunch of people canceled their account and uh that startup went under like almost immediately wow yeah, so it's like a huge concern is, is is you know walking this line between oh this is really
1: cool and oh, this is totally creepy <laughs> well onto something completely different uh I, d- I read this article that was I thought was really cool. We've talked in the past about microcontrollers and embedded programming. And here's a guy, um, we have a link in the show notes, but who is programming and controlling his Arduino, which is one of these uh, small embedded microcontrollers uh, with JavaScript. And I thought that was really cool how somebody had a passion. They really want to write stuff in JavaScript. And so they actually figured out how to use JavaScript to do something you wouldn't expect.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. That's pretty awesome. That's, that's a benefit between, you know... I mean, remember, like, it, it wasn't too long ago where compilers were totally closed source, locked down, and it's like, you would you would take your C or C++ code and you'd build it using GCC, uh, you know, and then you'd build it with the Intel compiler and you'd build it with, like, this other compiler and all these, you know, it'd be so much faster and things like that. And it's just nice to see that, like, the whole industry has really matured and... All of these tools are just totally open and accessible. And if you want to do something crazy like this, like recompile the JavaScript virtual machine for Arduino, that you have the freedom to do it.
1: Yeah. So, well, so I guess the way this actually worked is there's Node.js, which is a C++ JavaScript interpreter that mm-hmm. uh, actually I guess is powers Chrome. Is the same one? So V8 is that what it's right. called? I believe. That's right. Yeah. And so in there, because of the C++, they could basically create a an interface between the JavaScript portion and the C++ portion, which had access to the serial ports. So you could control commands out the serial ports, and then with a little bit of fiddling and ma- magic wizardry, we'll call it, um, the serial commands that got sent across, you could send across special ones that were interpreted on the Arduino side to blink a light or read a sensor or whatever. Ah, nice. So... That's awesome. It's pretty cool. It's kind of crazy to see what lengths people will go to to use something that isn't necessarily the first, closest uh, tool for the job that you would expect. So people would normally say, like, oh, C or C++. But here's a guy who took JavaScript, maybe one of the least likely ones, you would say, and got that to work as well because that's what he liked. Yeah, isn't that crazy how popular JavaScript
0: is becoming? Like, it just blows my mind. There's a... There's, there's Node.js, which is pretty awesome. Then there's... Um, oh, there's, I'm totally drawing blank. Oh, oh the uh, Android... Um, what is it called? I think it's called like MoJave or something. But basically the thing is you write uh, JavaScript code and then it turns your JavaScript code into either like... Uh, or it has, I like, guess, a virtual machine written in Java to run your code on the Android. Mm-hmm. And it also has one written in Objective-C, let me see if I can find this. Okay. Um, but, yeah, basically, so people are writing um, native, like, phone um, code in JavaScript, uh. and then it's, like, then they're just compiling it or they're ru- they're running it on all the phones. So they don't have to, like, oh, nice. write their code in Java, write another copy for the iPhone, write another copy for the Windows phone, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, JavaScript is becoming extremely popular. I mean, it already was popular, but it's just... It's just growing at an alarming
1: rate. Well, on a similar topic to controlling real real world things through your computer, uh, I guess this is another dream of science fiction, but I I read an article about um, people controlling robots with their brain. And so this one was actually, I think she had uh, this, a lady who had a brain implant was able to get a robotic arm to bring her a cup of coffee and actually tip it into her mouth so she could drink some. Um, Why use a oh, very nice. steaming hot beverage, I guess, just to show how confident you were in your system. But uh, that seems <laughs> dangerous to me. But uh, it is an amazing feat. And there's a lot of problems. And they said that they had to do it multiple times. And, like, I think they said it worked, like, four out of the five times or three out of the five times or something. So the there's other still... time she was burned horribly? <laughs> oh, no. No, I think she just, you know, dropped it or tipped it over or whatever. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I, it's kind of cool, this brain computer interfaces for paralyzed people and that's i mean that's just amazing that what it might be able to do to help those people and then one day you know maybe even the rest of us to be able to do that is like i said a dream of science fiction and young kids everywhere
0: yeah i mean everyone should watch this video it's amazing so how does that work is it is it based off like
1: I mean, it's not literally like... it's not, It hasn't punctured her skin, right? Yeah, No, no, no. This one has. So what they do is they... Oh, okay. I, I think it's a sensor, maybe like the size of a grain of rice, something really small, and they bury it in a certain portion of the brain. So oh, wow. they kind of like drill a hole in your brain and put this long needle with something on the end of it into this certain point. And then there's a bunch of little probes on the end is what I understand. And they measure the electrical spikes in the area of your brain. So neurons, when they fire and talk to each other in your brain when your brain has activity those emit emi signals electromagnetic signals um and so when or i guess just em signals um <laughs> i didn't get extra letters and <laughs> the they're able to pick those up you know measure those um and see that your brain has activity but at first it just kind of seems random because you have no idea what neurons you're next to or what exactly they're for or what they're doing but then You know, kind of like a child learns, you learn that, oh, when I think of the color green and smell the color coffee and try to move my left finger, you know, my left index finger, like I notice that the arm kind of does this wiggle motion. And so then over time, your brain kind of learns to think in a certain way to be able to control it. And what it is, is just these electrodes picking up the signals and detecting that your brain is emitting a certain pattern and then they interpret that pattern as you know move left or move right move up move down ah but this one actually gets implanted in your brain the one they're using yeah because because we've seen one where uh we were looking into one a while ago right that goes on the outside
0: yeah yeah but that one had mixed results but it looks like this one is much more fidelity
1: yes because it is the skull blocks a lot of that uh electromagnetic signal
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Makes
1: sense. So. Cool. So, yeah, the next article we have is why airplane bathrooms have ashtrays. And I assume it's not just because the airplane was built before smoking was banned? No. So that's the shocking thing. And even new airplanes
0: that are built now have ashtrays with no smoking symbols on them.
1: Wait, they have and, the ashtrays themselves have no smoking symbols? Yeah,
0: you should see the you should see some of the pictures of this okay. article. Very There's wonderful. literally an ashtray with a with a big no smoking on it. Um, and so you think to yourself, well, this is like some kind of like corporate, you know, bureaucracy kind of thing. Like somebody didn't do their paperwork or something and now all the airplanes have to have you know. but no, it's actually uh, it's actually a result of something that was quite tragic. Somebody smoked um, was smoking on an airplane Uh, while it was in flight and uh you know there's nowhere for them to put their cigarette because because smoking had been banned so they flushed the cigarette down the toilet and this this seems like very bizarre to me This what i'm about to say but somehow that caused the plane to crash like Uh almost everybody died like like i don't understand how flushing a cigarette down toilet can do that maybe they maybe they didn't flush it down the toilet because it said it was it was like poorly disposed of maybe they just put it in a trash can oh maybe they fire. put it in
1: where you put your paper towels
0: oh yeah that makes much more sense but yeah basically somebody did that and the plane crashed and everybody died and so um so so they they decided that they're going to put ashtrays on planes uh mandatory and the idea is you know the, the, where, where they're getting at here is yes you know in a perfect world you would you would have the no smoking symbol, you know, above their head. You have the smoke, no smoking on the entry of the door, the no smoking all over the bathroom, the signs everywhere. And people just wouldn't smoke, right? But the reality is that, you know, eventually you have to come to terms with that, you know, this is an addiction and that people, you know, their tendency. Like if you did a a use case study or something, you would find that people just have to smoke, right? And there's like one in a thousand or however many that just have to do it. Wow. Uh-huh. And so by putting in the ashtrays, they're saying, well, look, you know, you know, if somebody has to smoke, if they're going to just like w- if they're willing to take that risk of the fine and the alarm detector going off and them going to jail and everything and they're still going to do it, then like we have to have a way for them to do it without blowing up the plane. And then it goes from there into like a little bit of hyperbole, but it's actually really interesting on uh, sort of like how do you design for human nature? And it gives, like, a doorknob as an example. Um, so I thought it was pretty cool. So definitely give that article a look-see.
1: Yeah. Well, um, so it did say that the airline crashed because the smoke, so however it was improperly disposed of, it filled the cabin with smoke. And a bunch of people died from smoke inhalation because there's no, uh, like when it's pressurized and everything, there's nowhere for the smoke to go. Oh, wow. And so it just keeps building in the cabin.
0: Oh, so it's probably what you're saying then. He put it in where the paper towels
1: are, and it caused a huge fire. But it was in 1973, so it was actually a while ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, all right. Is it that time? It's time. Tool of the bye week Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you're up first, man. All right, so my tool of the bye week its actually two tools. Wait wait, on. wait, 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 wait! That's know. not fair. I'm breaking the rule, man. Uh, but now you're know, twice as awesome as me this week. We've
0: been—we've been on vacation and want to come back. You know, all—all all pistons firing. So these—the you're the—you're gonna only use one of these tools though, depending on what language you're programming in. Um, the tools are Berkeley DB and JDBM3, and basically what these are. Let's say, you know, let's say you want to store a lot of data. So what you want is a database, right? But when most people think of a database, they think of, like, MySQL, let's say. So, you know, here you are. Let's say I'm writing some program to, I don't know, just, like, count the number of times someone visits my site and just store it on disk, right? So if I do MySQL, I have to set up a MySQL server. I have to, you know like have that service running on a machine somewhere. I have to open that port because MySQL communicates through TCP. I have to write some MySQL client, which uses the TCP socket. I have to serialize all my data and take my data, which might be a bunch of classes and functions, things like that, and turn it into like MySQL tables. I have to create the schema. Like there's so much overhead, right? You can avoid some of that by using
1: SQLite, but maybe that's for another week.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, st- even with SQLite, you have yeah, to do but you a lot. Yeah, still have of that. some of those problems. Yeah. Yeah, you have to create the tables. Sorry, not that. to rain on your parade. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the simplest thing, the uh, simplest database that well that I can think of at least is a is a key value um, pair, right? So basically, you just have a list of keys and like a hash table, basically, but on disk. And so that's exactly what Berkeley DB is. It's just a simple um, hash table that persists the disk and you can put in keys, Uh, you can put in key value pairs, and then later on you can search for the key and you can get the value. And uh, it does some clever caching, Um, but uh, if you you fall through the cache, you know, it has a backup on disk. And it's also transactional. What that means is you can queue up a bunch of commands and then you can commit the commands. And so let's say, for example, um, let's say I load Patrick's profile. I'm, I'm a web server, and Patrick logs into my server on his computer, and uh, <clears throat> he goes and like changes his password. But then, at exactly the same time, uh, evil Patrick, who's masquerading as regular Patrick, is on Patrick's phone and changes his password right there on the phone too, or changes something else, changes his like profile picture to a Hello Kitty picture, like at exactly the same time. Um, you know, that can cause issues. Like you could end up like saving two things twice and one can collide and things like that. So you need to support transactions to deal with things like that. So the, the thing that comes in second, the transaction will fail, it'll say, hey, something weird has happened. This data has been modified. You need to take a look at this and sort this out. So it handles like the very basics of what you need to have, a, have a, what's called an ACID compliant uh, database. And acid, I don't remember. Do you know what it stands for, Patrick? It's like atomic uh, consistency,
1: isolation, like durability.
0: Ah, there you go. Perfect. So, yeah, so you want that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Berkeley DB has a bunch of bindings like C, C, um, you know, I think there's a Python binding. Actually, I think it's part of Python, uh, actually, now. Um, so if you're using Java, now Java already has a really nice collections framework, right? Like Java has map and you know hash map, tree map, linked list, array list, all these cool things. And since Java already has all this infrastructure, there's something called JDBM, which basically what it does is it gives you a map, like a Java map, but that map is backed by uh, back to disk. So in other words, like you just you could write your program and have everything in memory, like all your usernames and passwords and all that in memory. Mm-hmm. And then once your program gets more mature and you say, okay, I want to deploy this, you can just replace the new hash map with JDBM3 hash map, and it'll just deal with everything under the hood. So it'll put things to disk when you need to go to disk. It'll load things from disk, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, actually, Berkeley DB is the most popular database because it's installed, like, multiple times on everyone's machine. Like, even if you run Windows, Windows actually uses Berkeley DB for a number of things. Oh, wow. So this so, doesn't
1: handle over the network, though, right? Like, this is just for, like, local persistence to disk. Right. That's
0: right. And the other thing is um, it doesn't handle multiprocessor. processor Although now there are some versions that are starting to get into that, okay. but for the most part, it's you know if you have a single program, it could be multi-threaded, and I think we talked about this, but uh, uh, just to recap really quick, multi-threaded means you have you know a bunch of different threads that could all be doing different things, but they're all sharing the same memory. Versus multi-process, each one is a completely different program, and so uh, Berkeley DB and JDBM don't support multi-process yet but they uh, support multi-threaded so nice yeah so i mean unless you're you know a lot of websites use mysql um but really unless you're like some kind of powerhouse you'd be totally fine like if you're doing your own coding you'd be totally fine using something like this uh, and you'd
1: save yourself a ton of time and then i think if you use like a key value pattern like that right so if you can reduce it to something simple like that then I think it would be easy to move it over to network. Like I think Redis and other databases are kind of the same idea, but for network-connected things. So if you yep. wanted to add in sharing with other people, if you're using this key value mentality, there are other solutions that will take you to the next step. That's right. There's CouchDB, Redis. There's um, HBase. Yeah, there's a ton
0: of them. And we should maybe talk about, dedicate some time to that You know, in the future because those are actually really,
1: really interesting.
0: Right. All right. Um, yeah. Well, Mike so what tool, about
1: your tool of the bye week Nothing nearly so enterprisey, uh, <laughs> or or, progr- I don't know, anyways, audacity. So I I've, I've thought, well, oh, for sure we've talked about audacity before, and maybe we have, and maybe my show notes are lacking. But I looked through all the show notes, and I couldn't find it. Wow. Um, and I decided we needed to talk about it because it is what you are listening through us, the power by which you are listening to us now. Definitely. Audacity. So that's what we use to record this podcast And edit it And you know it Before to do this kind of thing You used to have to buy expensive software And then you know when Audacity came around It really changed all of that So you can record, you can clean up, you can edit You can mix multiple tracks together If we had cool sound effects We would be able to put them in um, For right now like we use it to do our intros And our outros um, yep. You know all that kind of stuff we do using Audacity And it's amazing and it's free and it's open yeah. source.
0: Yeah, I remember when I used to use Adobe Premiere and then I think even before that I used something called Cool Edit or maybe that was after. But yeah, I mean at some point I used these programs, and they cost like hundreds of dollars and it was just it's just like they were very slow and clunky and um, you know, Audacity works on Windows, Linux, Mac, it works on anything. Really nice interface. Let you do all the like they they added all the polish, you know. Like for example, you know, I'm on my headphones. And uh, there's an option so that it won't use your speakers, like won't use your microphone that's hooked up to your computer if you have the headphones plugged in and
1: things like that. Yep. So very nice stuff. and very powerful. And if you don't know about it and you want to do any sort of audio editing, yeah, that's where you should go. Yeah, totally, totally. So. All right, let's talk about Lua. Lua. Now, how similar is Lua to a Luau? Very similar. It's because both. I
0: like Luau's. I love luau's. The only thing, sometimes, like, like you see that pig. What is that called when they have the pig with the oh, apple the, in its mouth? Yeah, yeah, it's suckling. Suckling pig. That's right, yeah, the suckling pig. Uh, I think Lua core dumps a lot more than the suckling pig, but that might be because the pig is dead.
1: Oh. <laughs> I, I, I okay, we might have lost people uh, from our <laughs> trying-to-be-punny. Um.
0: But, yeah, so Lua uh, originated in Brazil, it actually has an interesting history. At some point, Brazil actually had a like some kind of law where they weren't allowed—you weren't allowed to import source code. It's like the mm. craziest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, it's like
1: almost like a trade embargo of sorts. It's yeah. like, we want our country to stay behind in technology. Maybe that's why so many of them use Orchid. <laughs> oh man! Uh, but yeah,
0: so so there's so there's a. Uh, so for people who don't know, uh, Orchid is a social network, sort of like predecessor to Facebook or any of these. It was like even earlier than Friendster. And for some reason, it's like massive adoption in Brazil, but that's it. Yeah. Um, Although they
1: said it's not anymore. Facebook surpassed Orchid popularity in Brazil.
0: Oh, really? Well,
1: yeah. it's about time.
0: Uh, but <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, it started off in Brazil uh, as a need to sort of create uh, embeddable language. Um, but, you know, actually, although it, it sort of sounds like something, you know, it, it was created because there was no alternatives in Brazil, the reality is it's a fantastic embeddable language. And, uh, you know, at the time it was created, the uh, only language even remotely, uh, you know, similar in its ability to sort of integrate with other languages is TCL or Tickle, uh, yeah, as people I mean, call it. Yeah, we're talking it. like 1993. Yeah, yeah, this has been around for a long time. And... Uh, I don't know. I've used Tickle a couple of times, like very, very light usage, and I I couldn't stand it. Is that how you say? It? I don't think I've ever heard it said that way before. I always just called it TCL.
1: Yeah, I've heard both. Okay. So
0: let's see if if y'all dig it up while you're Tickle. No, you it's okay. It doesn't matter. But yeah, I
1: mean Lua is is goes way back, and it's been around for a while. And the interesting thing about it is that a lot of those things that used to exist around, you know, aren't really around anymore. Um, but there are certain artifacts we have today that are just from, you know, older than you would imagine, like even just like the bash shell and bash scripting and, you know, scripting on Linux or Unix type terminals. Like, I mean, these things are things that are, have been around for a while and they haven't changed much. Um, and even things like Java, like when was Java first when did java first release Uh-oh. oh we did not do uh, research
0: <laughs> i was in high school so it must have been like 98 or 97 yeah
1: so i mean you're talking about even even older than that. It's saying 1995 was when it was first released yeah it so yeah, was that's... a year two years predating even java um which is kind of crazy yeah and yeah
0: lose brown forever it's and it's still
1: relevant today yeah totally so so it is tickle okay uh, according
0: to wikipedia and i will New correct wikipedia my language from henceforth <laughs> but uh but yeah so lua lua is interpreted um so it's like python where it's compiled but uh it could be compiled at runtime so you know it has that so it's like kind of transparently
1: feel. compiled
0: yeah exactly so you can r- create lua i think it's called lua c files just like the pyc files in python okay. and then you don't have to you do the compiling um, save yourself a little bit of processor. But uh, yeah, for the most part, everyone just uses the source files and treats it as an interpreter. Um, it's similar to Python as dynamic typing, but uh, one thing that's very different in Lua, everything is based on um, tables and meta tables. And, uh, you know, as opposed to, so if you think about like Python, for example, uh, Python has, you know, lists, has dictionaries, has um, uh, classes. So a class in Python is, uh, has that sort of dictionary meta information and then has the class assignment stuff. I think, does Python have anything else? Uh, core um. structures? I think that's all of it. I mean, there's like sets, but sets are based on lists. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then, then it has the usuals like string and number and all that. Um, in Lua, all you have are tables and uh, meta tables, which is something we'll talk about in a bit. But, you know, with just tables and the primitive data types, um, you can actually create a wide array of things in Lua. Um, should we try to do an example of MetaTable? I think I can try. I'll try and okay. pull this off. Okay. So,
1: <laughs> so, so there are features in all of these languages which people tend to get excited about or, like, talk in depth about on the Internet. But that doesn't mean they... And I don't know if this is the case with Lua or not. I I personally haven't used the meta tables part of Lua. But I mean, just before you go into the explanation, Jason, not to interrupt Mm you... uh, Oh, totally. uh, Yeah, so I mean, like, there's... Even, like, we talked about in C++ about meta programming, you know, this is something that gets talked about a lot because it's kind of cool and nifty and whiz-bang. But that doesn't mean that the majority of code even uses it or ever thinks about it or ever even comes close to thinking about it. Like, um, but it might still be talked about all on the internet. And there's something that as programmers, we need to do a little bit of due diligence to avoid. And again, I don't know that this applies in this specific case, but just because something is discussed on the internet or talked about doesn't mean it's something that you need to have in your program.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I wrote Lua for a little over a year as a scripting language to uh, another um, uh, program that, that our company is working on. But uh, uh, yeah, we didn't use meta tables or anything fancy like that. And, and uh, to Patrick's point, most of the time in Lua, um, you're just taking advantage of how Lua can work with other programs, and so you're usually doing the fancy thing in that other program. Um, but yeah, so, so, so sorry. Meta tables. Yeah, I'll give meta tables a shot. So first, let's talk about tables briefly. A table in Lua is a hash table, it's an associative array. So, for example, uh, if you want in Lua, you can say you know, you can create a new table, like my table equals, you know, open brace, close brace. And then you could say, like, my table uh, key Sunday equals zero. And my table Monday is one, Tuesday is two, Wednesday is three, et cetera, et cetera. And so then later on, you could say, well, what is Wednesday? And it'll tell you three for the third day of the week, right? Um, Or I guess the fourth day of the week, (laughs) zero-based. But but basically... um, you know, it's an associative race, so it just uses the equals operation for whatever type it's using. So you could have a table with tables in it, or you could have a table that maps numbers to strings. It doesn't matter, right? It, because it'll just uh, it knows how to compare if two things are equal, and so it can just hash anything.
1: So um, wait, so so I mean, this is the second time we've kind of brought this up, but maybe a quick explanation of hash tables. Just like the idea of hashing is just taking one thing, running some sort of function on it, and producing a number. So like, if you take one number, you might multiply it by 10. And that's your hashing function. That's not a very good hashing function. Um, and then typically, like the, the simplest way to think about a hash table is just an array. So let's say you have an array that's size 10. And you want to store things in it that aren't necessarily obvious you know, that it should be an array. So like to Jason's point, if you want to store the day of the week Sunday somewhere in there, where should Sunday go? Well, you could take the letters. Of Sunday, and like add the ASCII value of each of the letters, you know, modulus, so divide that and take the remainder of 10 and say, like, that's the index in the array I'm going to use to store anything that's Sunday. Or, like Jason's saying, you can use it kind of like more like maybe an enumeration where Sunday is kind of like the zeroth object or store zero in it. So when you look it up later in the table, you can pull out the number zero and you know that that is the value Sunday should have.
0: Yeah, totally. And so, um, there's something in hash tables called collisions. So let's say for example, let's say you did what Patrick was saying where you add up all the ASCII values and, div- and modulus 10 and just coincidentally, let's just say Sunday and Wednesday, when you did that, they both had eight. That doesn't mean that Wednesday is going to replace Sunday. What happens with the hash table is when it goes to insert Wednesday, it'll see, oh, Sunday's already in this table, but Sunday and Wednesday are two different things. So then it'll do like what's called a deep compare. So first, it'll compare just the hashing, the hash uh, function, and if there's a collision, it'll do a deep compare and say, is this the same item? Should I replace it? Um, if it's not, then it'll. There's many different things it can do then, but uh, um, but yeah, basically, a hash table is a way to get really fast lookup
1: and entry of items. And the reason why is because you don't have to search through the whole array or whole you know storage. Because you know exactly where to go because of this hashing function, right? And you, you don't have, have to sort part. either, or right. like try and put things in order. But it doesn't help you if you do need a sorted list. A hash table won't help you. That's right.
0: Um, so uh, yeah, so table. So in Lua, um, let's say you have this uh, this table with days of the week: Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc. Um, but you want the table to do something special if it gets a string it never saw before. Like this is sort of a weird example coming up with on the fly here, but let's <laughs> say let's say you had a table where um, if someone it, let's say this is some kind of like cache. So it's a table to get the day of the week, but it's not always accurate. So for example, let's say the table just has English days of the week. So as the keys in the table or it would be Sunday, so Sunday would map to 0, Monday would map to 1, Tuesday would map to 2, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then you could end up getting... Uh, Domingo. What's, yeah, Domingo, thank you. <laughs> I couldn't remember any any day for any language. Okay, so let's say you get Domingo. What you could do in Lua is you can create a meta table. And what the meta table will do is, if there isn't a key in the table, but you try to look it up anyways... like You're trying to look up Domingo, but it's not in the table it could fall back on the meta table and the meta table might do something like go to some database that has like all the days of the week for all the foreign languages so by using this meta table concept you know if you want sunday you get it really quick you know it's in the table it's in memory but if you want domingo which maybe you don't want that often let's say because the majority of your business is in the US right now but occasionally there's a domingo that comes across um, then you want to have this meta table that captures that, hits the database, and then returns, you know, whatever. What is that? Six or something? Is Domingo Saturday or Sunday? S- uh, s- I think it's s- Sunday. Oh, it's Sunday! Because it returns zero for that. So that's what meta tables that you do. And if you look on Wikipedia, there's some pretty clever examples. There's one where they uh, they do the Fibonacci sequence, which for people who don't know, it's um, Uh, What is it? N The sum
1: of the two digits of the... Or the two prior entries in the series. Right. So, for example, like... uh,
0: You know, the Fibonacci number of 1 is 1. And uh, 2 is... 1. 2 is 1. But then 3 is going to be... 2. F of 1 plus F of 2, which is 2. And the Fibonacci sequence of 4 is going to be F of 2 plus F of 3, which is 3. Right. So... They were able to use the meta tables to say, okay, I'll create a table and one is one and two is one. And then I create a meta table where if they want anything besides one or two, it's the table entry of n minus two plus the table of entry of n minus one. And so that'll kind of recurse backwards. And, and uh, Lua is smart about caching. So let's say something happens where all of a sudden you have an influx of Spanish speaking people hitting your website and everyone wants Domingo all of a sudden. Um Lua will actually cache that value. Um so you won't have to just keep hitting the database. So it's clever about that. Um this is also called memoization. When you do like well memoization is more with respect to recursion, but but if you do these kind of things where like you cache data in a table in a hash table so you don't have to keep calling a function. Um Lua'll do that for you, which is pretty clever.
1: So it's cool because you're In some ways, you're able to just use a table that, in theory, has infinitely many entries in it, has all of the Fibonacci sequence in it, but then only when you actually try to use some entry of the Fibonacci sequence does it actually go and figure out what that number should be. Right. This is also called lazy, like
0: either lazy loading or, in this case, lazy calculations.
1: It only calculates what it needs to. That's right. That's right. Interesting. So so what are some of the... So we kind of hinted at some of the strengths of Lua that we already mentioned that it was used as like a scripting language. And, and it's kind of used as a scripting language, I guess, because it works so well with C and C++. It's really easy to embed it. And you said you've worked with it this way before?
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, Lua was designed to integrate with, with C specifically, but later on with C++. And so, you know, just to put this like in just a contrast um let's say you want to embed like python for example well you have to use this like really clunky like python c api and uh like everything is kind of based on these functions and you have to like convert like python oh you know i forgot the well so there's calling
1: c from python and then there's scripting events in c with python Right, yeah.
0: And so both of those get complicated because you have to transmute the types. So in Python you have lists, you have dictionaries, you have all these different types, right? As we talked about at the beginning. And each of those you have to create some kind of analog on the C or C++ side, or you have to create some kind of like accessors. So you have to be able to say like, "Oh, this is a list in Python, so I want to get the fourth element in this list from my in my C++ program." Or I have this C++ array I want Python to think of this as a list, you know? And this kind of stuff ends up becoming like, no matter how you do it, it ends up becoming really clunky. Um, Lua, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like it only has tables, but on the plus side, it only has tables, right? Which (laughs) which map exactly to C++, you know, hash maps. Um, So it makes it very easy to integrate the two languages. And even easier because people have, since so many people are doing this with Lua or embedding it, they've created some amazingly streamlined libraries to make this happen. So, uh, one is LuaBind, which uh, I used briefly, uh, but the second one I'm more familiar with is called Dilukulum, which uh, I think it's some African word or something. But uh, we have a link to the um, uh, in the show notes, so you guys can look it up. But basically, it has a, it's it's for C++, and it has a thing that maps like Lua tables actually anything in lua to to the analog in c++ and it sort of does it all transparently so you can just say hey you know go to the lua world and get me this variable and even like on the other side in your lua program you can say hey go to the c++ world and get me this variable and uh, it does it all like very transparently nice yeah it's pretty awesome
1: so because of that strength you can think like anywhere you'd want to script something so things you might want to script like often you hear this in like video games so video games want to have some scripting done where you control what happens when a player swings a sword and hits somebody you know what like what happens you can script that event like i want to decrease damage by 10 and i want to you know trigger effect magic lightning bolts you know onto the screen and these kinds of things you can imagine like through play testing and stuff, you might want to tweak those, but you don't wanna to have to go in and actually like, you know, edit the code or have to even know what the code means. You might want to have other people be able to make those changes. And so scripting language just provide that flexibility to you.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, most of these game studios, the people who are creating the content, they're not programmers. Um, you know, they're just, they're often like game designers who Are just sort of like playing with the different variables like oh if i make magic more powerful how does that affect the game and let me play for a few hours on this setting and they can't afford even if they did know how to program they can't afford to be recompiling code all the time and things like that they want to just make changes quick and so uh lua sort of gives them that flexibility yep um yeah lua is also very fast um you know the the uh, because it only has tables, basically hash tables. Um, you know it doesn't have to do a lot of thinking, doesn't have a lot of complicated instructions or anything like that. And so the execution speed is awesome. And you can even use Lua and like embedded devices and things like that, which don't have a lot of uh, don't have strong processors and not worry about it. Yeah.
1: So so there's some good strengths and um, weaknesses. I, I think you're kind of alluded to the fact that. They really only have tables and meta tables. So, yeah. I mean, that's a strength that it's very simple that way, but also, like everything, that can be a weakness as well that it it doesn't always obvious how to get what you need to get done. Yeah, totally. I mean, people have tried to shoehorn so much into the tables
0: and meta tables. Like, someone created, like, a class-based infrastructure where, you know, if you, you have getters and setters as, like, items keys in the table but it's really hacky and then once you start doing things like that performance sort of goes down the tubes because it's not, the language isn't really designed for that mm. um it's not really designed for you to hit a meta table every time you want to access a variable <laughs> um and the other the other weakness is that it's just not very fully featured you know i mean no one's taken the time to bind your favorite library to lua chances are you know like i mean if you um mm. really like Fluid dynamics, or you want to use like some kind of physics engine, or if you want to do something like some kind of heavy like differential equations or something, you know, chances are that that hasn't been, um, you know, there's no binding for Lua for that. And that's mainly because, you know, Lua is designed to sort of be a supplement to another language. So it's, you're just not going to get the kind of features you get. Like in Python, for example, um, if you want to. Just let's say you have you're streaming out a bunch of data to disk, and you want that data to be compressed. Well, there's a gzip, uh, uh, you know, library like which is part of the Python standard library. So there's compression built in. You can say, look, write this to disk and make it compressed, so that it doesn't take up as much space. Um, you're not going to find that kind of functionality in Lua. So if you need those kind of bindings, you're going to have to write them yourself, which could be really tedious. So mm,
1: Yeah. But I, there are some libraries. It's not to say that it's not fully featured or functional. And we have a link here. But, I mean, there's, there are libraries for it. And, you know, it's fairly well supported. It's not, and again, being around so long, it kind of has to be. And it's just one of those things you're going to have to go in and say, this is what I get and not expect that when you find a cool tool that it will have a binding for Lua yeah yeah totally yeah i mean to patrick's point
0: there's a we post a link we'll post the link on the show notes and there is a ton of uh there are a ton of uh you know different libraries for lua and things like that so definitely uh i wouldn't shy away from it because of that um but yeah i mean definitely if you have some existing application and you find yourself just constantly recompiling it and changing constants and recompiling it then uh, you probably should just be using
1: lua (laughs) 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 So so the people that use it, I mean, we talked about it tends to be scripting. So World of Warcraft uses Lua as their scripting engine. So, um, you know, other people, I know there's some mods and stuff that are written with scripting language in Lua. Also, um, I use this program to do some photo editing, Lightroom, which is an Adobe product that does um, workflow for taking pictures and editing them. And then, you know, kind of making libraries or catalogs and saving them out. And all Not the nice. UI in there was scripted in Lua. Yeah, I
0: mean, UI is an obvious choice. So in general, uh, just to talk a little bit about things, like why you need scripting, right? Now, we talked about a couple of the reasons, um, you know, with the recompiling and things like that. But also, some things like UI specifically is just a pain to write in a, in a you know, statically typed language like C++. So, for example, let's say you know you want to hit a button or a menu item and when you hit that button you want a function to be called well in C++ to do that you have to create some kind of uh, interface class it's a virtual class which has some method called you know like perform function and then all of your classes which need to have this function need to inherit from that class and you need to like downcast the class when you pass it into the button and it just you have to go through all these hoops right but if you have an interpreted language like Lua, um, which is driving your GUI, then you can just uh, bind different um, actions to different buttons, and Lua doesn't care about the types of the diff- of the you know actions. So it doesn't care if like oh this one function was part of a class, um, and now like you have to do all sorts of crazy wizardry to get access to that. Lua, you know, because it's a scripting language, it doesn't have any of that. Overhead, And so it makes it great for doing UI. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So Lua. Yeah. yeah give it a shot, <laughs> man.
0: <laughs> Don't write your UI in uh, C++ if you can help it.
1: <laughs> so um, on general notes, I guess meta notes, kind of like meta tables. Uh, anyways, <laughs> um, we have gotten some good feedback from people, some extra language suggestions, some people writing in to tell us that they found tips or tricks that we've mentioned useful, and as always, we appreciate that. You know, we are always glad to be out there and helping people, and at least entertaining you, hopefully. Yeah, totally. So, if you do have something to say, you can check us out on Google Plus. We have a programming Throwdown Plus page, and uh, we're pretty good about putting the new episodes linked there. Or, you know, if you have comments, you can of course put them there. Hopefully, positive, but uh, we're willing to take criticism as well yeah and, totally. Uh, you can always if you have something you don't necessarily want there you can always email us at programming throwdown at gmail.com
0: yeah one interesting thing somebody wrote in and said that uh i guess they can't access the g plus page unless they're unless they have a g plus account is that true oh i don't i don't know yeah i don't have. to be honest Maybe. i haven't tried yeah I we guess shall I, try <laughs> i thought it was public like i thought there was a public section but, uh, yeah, if, if, uh, as Patrick was saying, just to reiterate, if you can't access us on G Plus for whatever reason, don't hesitate to shoot an email to programmingthrowdown at gmail.com.
1: Yeah, and I guess other if you can't see the Plus page, you can also check out the blog. Um, oh, that's right. Totally. Programmingthrowdown.blogspot.com. Yeah, you could follow the blog. We definitely cross post everything on there, and yeah, that and so sure then there's also public. you can put comments there, and I, I believe that generate. I don't. We don't check that very often, but I think it does actually send us an email when somebody posts a comment there. That's true. Yep. So, so I, we we try to be easy to reach. We're here yeah, for you, people. Definitely. You know, if if you have any, you know, we've had a couple
0: of requests, and we want to fulfill the requests. So, um, definitely Java is going to be coming down the pipe, and Go is going to be coming down the pipe oh Um, you're
1: foreshadowing
0: now now we have a lot to live up to (laughs) but if there are any other requests uh, from the audience don't hesitate we definitely read every one of them and uh you know we uh we have a backlog that we're getting yeah yeah,
1: and don't be offended if we don't reply to you or you know whatever we are listening we are taking it in um and yep hopefully we'll get there one day (laughs) yeah
0: yeah i mean if you say you want a language you're gonna get it it just might uh it's just in the pipeline.
1: <laughs> I'm actually surprised. I did make up a list, and the list is pretty long, so there are a lot of languages to go through. Yeah, totally. So And then probably it's one of those things where more... Is there more created than we're talking about? Like, is there at least one created every two weeks? Oh, man, there could be. Uh-oh. We might but never finish this job, Jason. Oh, it could go on forever. Uh-oh. Now I know how movie critics feel. All right, on that note... <laughs> <laughs> that's all you got everyone have a good time all right
0: see you guys later the intro music is axo by binar pilot programming throwdown is distributed under a creative commons attribution share alike 2.0 license you're free to share copy distribute transmit the work to remix adapt the work but you must provide an attribution uh to uh patrick and i and uh share alike in kind